So dear God, uh, uh, let's let's pray. I welcome everybody. Let's let's pray. Dear God, we just we just pray that that you would be in our midst. We need you. We realize uh, how much we need you, and that without you, we can do nothing. We don't want to do things without you. We want to be like Moses in the book of Exodus when he said, uh, we ask that your presence goes before us, that your presence is among us. Thank you that we have a Holy Spirit which is in us, that we have your presence and we just be aware of it and recognize it and we call you that uh, your glory is revealed in this in this place and this hour and in many people's lives thank you god for this highest calling we have on our lives just to go and save people from eternal hell thank you we have the words of eternal life we don't have a, a message how to and what to do and rules and orders and but we have a words of life just simple trust and faith in the saving work of jesus christ thank you god for this glory for the glorious gospel and we just ask you bless this time as we continue bible school the book of romans in jesus name amen so welcome bible school students uh uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, I think I mentioned it, but it's good to say it again. Uh, we had a visitor in our place and uh, uh, we started to listen uh, one class of the Bible school. We are listening uh, these uh, NBC NS free messages that are also on our page. And we listened to it and he said, uh, he just like said like, that's interesting, you know, like, you are watching this Bible school, and we said, yeah, we do, like, regularly, you know, step by step, we want to have this input of the Word of God from important men of God in our life. And he said, that's interesting, you are listening Bible school after 16 years after you finished the Bible school, and you are still listening to it. And it spoke to me, you know, I, I was never thinking about this because it's part of our life. We go to Bible school to learn. Uh, we go to Bible school to, to uh, learn from the men and women of God, uh, make a spiritual friendships, expand the vision. Uh, but once you get diploma, it's not over, you know, it, it continues. You know, the Bible school is ongoing process. We are learning all our lives and we don't want to stop. Uh, it's not uh, something mandatory uh, by some establishment, but it's basically mandatory by life itself. You know, the life requires this, because if we are not in the Word of God, we will be soon lost. And, and we love it, you know, we love the Word of God, it speaks to us. Uh, recently we had the meaning and there was a man and he was saying, I'm reading these Psalms, you know, and he read the Psalm 5 and he was reading it and he said, it speaks to me, it speaks to me, you know, and it's amazing, you know, the Word of God speaks to us very, very much. And 
we are in the book of Romans, chapter 9. That's where we are starting uh, this semester. But before, before we go into the Romans, chapter 9, I just wanted to read this, this passage from Luke 5. Because I want to touch a little bit something, one theme that we, that we mentioned before we spoke about. And here is a story of disciples, how Jesus is calling disciples. And Luke 5, verse 4. And it says here, And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for draught. And Simon answering him said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And this is, I want to connect this really uh, to the voice of God, and basically to the Bible school. Uh, God speaks to us. You know, he says, do this. You can do this. Uh, he, he speaks to us through the word and he says, and I'm saying this about you or about situation. And God speaks to us in many places. And this man, he says, well, I know it. I know it all. He says, Master, come on. We have worked all night and we have caught nothing. There is nothing in these waters right now. The fish is on the other side of the lake or they are hiding in the deep. They are not here. You know, what are you trying to tell us? Master, we know it. We know this lake. We, we grew up here. We have a boat here. And, and we are fishermen. Master. You know, they are the professionals. You know, so Jesus is giving this advice about fishing to fishermen, real professionals. They've been on the lake. They know it. And then he says... Nevertheless, at your word, I will obey. And they had this miraculous catch. And Pastor Scheller mentioned, and this is, this is what I want to think about as we approach the uh, Bible study this year. Think about it this way, you know. We don't want to just learn things. We don't want to just uh, gain knowledge. Uh, we really want to learn God and we want to learn how to think with God in categories, at different situations. And what I mean by it, uh, Pastor Scheller mentioned this, we may bring a bucket of a, of a seawater here, you know, and you see it, you can taste it, it's a salty, it may have even some little sand, small fish, and this is, this is the sea that we speak about. You know, and somebody can say, well, I know it, I've learned it. I know how it tastes, how it smells, I saw the fish in it. I know the sea, this is the sea. But then when you come to the shore and you see, you know, the distance, how, how, how vast it is, how huge, you know, it has nothing to do with the bucket. You know, the consistency is the same. But then seeing the sea with your own eyes, you feel the breeze, the smell. You know, it's calm and you can see the face of a sun in it, your own face. Or you can go into the depth of the sea 
like really deep, deep, and it's dark. And there's like moving creatures that you cannot see, but you know they are there. The depth of the sea. The bucket will not tell you. Or you can go on the sea and it starts to be a raging sea. You know, the waves, the roars, you know, the cold, you know, the sprinkling of the water, the power of the wave, you know, the tide as the sea comes with the moon and then as the moon leaves, the tide comes away, you know, and you get the, you know, just, just being at the sea and learning it this way is completely different than when you have a bucket of a sea salty water and this is what I'm speaking I want us to go outside of this classroom and sit at the seashore and learning the sea this is how we need to learn God you know we cannot we cannot comprehend him by the bucket uh, God is incomprehensible anyway but really we want to know him who he is and experience him so this is just a this is just a way how we can learn him but we have to be careful in our heart that we do not receive god as a, as a as a bucket of a salty water and we can say oh i know what the sea is no we have to learn god the way that we go with him and we sit at the shore and we and we just get totally different impression of the sea this is what i want from us and uh this is something we want we don't want to be like a simon saying ah oh god I, I know it i know it all you know we know it all i know it what are you saying eh? yeah romans 9 speaking about israel and then later chapter 11 again i know it all no it's a bucket Let's go with God. Let's go deep. And you know, there's a promise. You know, we spoke about it recently. Hebrews, you know, 11. Uh, 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 that God is the rewarder of those who seek Him. You know. So, uh, the one who comes to God must believe that He is rewarder of those who seek Him. And this is what we believe. We are seeking God, and there is a reward, you know. Uh, 11, verse 6. He is rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This is what we do. We are diligently seeking Him. And there is a reward. There is a gem. There is a diamond. There is a gold piece. There is, a, there is an anointing, the broken vessel. The broken vase with the anointing. Being in the right order. Being adjusted with the things of God. There is a life, supernatural life that this world cannot experience. You know, we don't want to miss these things just by studying words and pages. So really, this is encouragement. Let's think with God. Let's think with the, with the author and writer of this book. And, and I know we do, and we will do it. Uh, we will continue in this even in this year. Okay, so now, Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Paul, after saying all these things, 
what basically uh, happened on our account with the glory on the believer and through the believer, the finished work uh, about the work of God on our behalf and in us. Uh, he comes to this and he says in, a, in chapter 9, he says, I say the truth in Christ and I lie not. My conscience also bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he says here simply, I say the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience is also bearing witness with the Holy Spirit. I have this heaviness for Israel, for my brethren according to flesh. Because he was a Jew and he mentions this. And he says, verse 3, I even wish I myself were accursed, uh, that he would be separated from Christ for his brethren, for these Israelites. Because he, he is one of them and he received the truth of the cross. He knows the Savior and he looks at his nation and he says, they don't know him. And he has this burden for them, burden for this nation who has this uh, uh, adoption offered and the glory and covenants, this is all verse 4, and the giving of the law and the service, which is this liturgia of God and the promises or, or, the, or the covenants we mentioned. This is all given to them and in Christ, because there is a salvation, national salvation, and promises to the nation, and then there is a personal salvation, personal relationship to the Lord. So he says uh, that he, in his conscience, this conscience is bearing witness with him. The word for conscience here is connected with this uh, bearing witness in the Holy Spirit and this is very important this word for bearing is sum martureo uh, martureo it's a martyr it's someone who is martyred and he gives out the testimony and this sum it's like from a math sum summarization everything together so basically he says that his conscience is bearing witness together with the Holy Spirit. And why I'm mentioning it is so beautifully written here uh, because uh, we listen to our conscience many times. And what is the conscience? You know, the conscience is, uh, is given by God and in Romans 2.15 even pagans have a conscience. We were teaching this in the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans 2.15. It says that even the Gentiles, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. You know, and then it says, while accusing or else excusing one another. 
So the conscience is some norm uh, or its norms and standards which are usually learned by uh, family values, uh, by the education and the system and culture that we live in, the morals that we receive. Uh, the, the conscience is uh, basically learned thing. And we can see this if you travel to different cultures, they have different norms and standards in their conscience. It can be uh, connected to a style of uh, uh, clothing, you know, how the people dress in that country. Uh, different style of uh, uh, behavior in relationships and marriages. You know, different norms and morals and standards. And in their conscience, if you would speak with them, it's perfectly okay to do this and that. While in other countries, it's not, it's a, inappropriate. You know, you, you will face this when you go to Africa. Uh, most of the times, the Europeans or Americans, they do not dress uh, properly in the standards of Africans. You know, women uh, wearing shorts, I'm, I'm, I have nothing against it, but I'm just saying, women wearing shorts and flip-flops, you know, uh, if you come in this way to Africa, that's not appropriate. You know, they will look at you uh, as, as, as a vulgar person. You know, uh, they cover more than we do. And I'm just saying this, that I want to show that... Uh, we have different standards just based on the culture, education, and that's why I said the family values. You know, the family uh, is the deciding factor. And uh, sometimes conscience accuses, as we read in Romans 2.15, and sometimes excuses us. You know, a person does certain things, and how do you know you do right? Well, your conscience tells you. You know, many times you cannot do things against your conscience and it's a very powerful voice how the conscience speaks to us but what's really important in this case in in a case of a christian that uh, hebrews 9 13 it speaks about the conscience which has been washed by the blood hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 and 13 for if the blood of bulls you know and sprinkling and sanctification of the flesh and verse 14 how much more shall the blood of Christ who through eternal spirit offered himself offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works so he says here that the Old Testament, you know, the blood of the goats and sprinkling were for the purifying of the flesh, certain rituals, processes. And how much more the blood of Christ offered before, without a spot, purged your conscience from dead works. This is it. You know, if you do something wrong, your conscience or the worm that never dies in the Bible, you know, it's troubling you. You've done something wrong and you are troubled. The conscience is very powerful. It's a gift of God. Uh, 
the, the, the fallen conscience comes uh, after the sin in the Garden of Eden, uh, when Adam and Eve started to be uh, self-aware, they started, started to be self-conscious, aware of themselves, and the conscience came and it was accusing or excusing them. And then we have this, uh, in John 1 and 9, there is a light from God which comes to every man. This is very important. Because sometimes you may learn some things and norms and standards by the family and, and the government. You may live under the communist government and they teach you something. But still your conscience says something else. There is this voice which says, you know, maybe it's not this way. This conscience of a criminal who comes and steals money and then he is so troubled for years and years and years. So after years he goes to police station and he says, here am I, I am the criminal. He, he shows all the facts and then he has a witness of a conscience. You know, he, he, he needs to do this, otherwise he would be troubled all his life. The voice of a conscience is very powerful. The only thing we have to be careful, you know, that uh, uh, Titus 1.15 says that there is defiled conscience. And 1 Timothy 4.2 says there is a seared conscience. You know, searing, it's hot iron. If you ever saw the cowboy movies, they have a cow, they have a hot iron, and they burn the seal on the cow, you know. Uh, and this place is burned, it's not sensitive anymore. So, Bible is using the same word, seared conscience with a hot iron. You know, the conscience is not sensitive anymore. So, uh, we have to be careful about this fallen conscience, uh, defiled, seared, or defined by the culture. Although the conscience, as we said, has this great power, uh, it doesn't usually truth. Now, when the person is saved, uh, he has this blood-cleansed conscience, as we said from the dead works, Hebrews 9, 14. Uh, what it means, we are not being accused anymore, uh, and it's mentioned again in Hebrews 10, the blood-washed conscience, verse 3 and 2, verse 2. So then, speaking about sacrifices and the Old Testament Jews, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. Speaking, how come that the uh, blood of these animals did not wash completely their conscience? Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Okay, but then jumping back to 9.14, but we have a blood-cleansed conscience. In practice, how does this work? If a person is not born-again believer and his conscience is not cleansed by the blood, you know, he doesn't have a clean conscience, he is still being accused. You have a guilt, you have sinned, you have to do something with it. And that's why people go into works program. 
because they do not listen the voice of God, but they listen the voice of their fallen conscience, which is accusing them rightfully. You are a sinner. You've done a bad. Well, now what are you going to do? Well, then you do good and your conscience will praise you for doing good. And they have a good feeling. And that's why people are so oriented on a works program. Because their fallen conscience is telling them what's right and what's wrong. But the, but the Christian has a, has a blood-cleansed conscience. There is no more remembrance of sin and we are purged from the dead works. What it means. When we face Jesus and God in heaven, we are reminded of the cross where he paid for all our sins. And that's why our conscience is not accusing us anymore. But in agreement with God, it gives the, uh, the same testimony together with the Holy Spirit. And it says, you are clean. And we are free from dead works. We don't enter these dead works in order to appease our conscience, in order to try to appease God and bring Him peace by being good. No, the Christian, the believer, has this blood-cleansed conscience. I'll repeat it again. You know, unregenerated person is in the system of works because his conscience says this is right, this is wrong, you have to do this, you have to do that, and he lives in these dead works. Blood-bought Christian, Hebrews 9.14, the blood cleanses our conscience from dead works. We stand before God and we know we've been justified, we are forgiven, we've been accepted, we are in the family. All these previous verses that we spoke about in the previous chapters of the book of Romans. My conscience is clean before God from dead works. I don't have to do any works in order to balance it or appease it or suppress my, my bad conscience which is accusing me of sin. No. I am clean before God. Clean conscience. And then we go and then we do good works because we are clean. Because we know we go to heaven. And we want others also know Christ as, as the personal Savior. So this is amazing uh, that uh, it affects, uh, or how, how to say it, uh, the true understanding of the cross and of the blood affects our behavior and respectively our conscience in this sense. If the person doesn't really understand the meaning of the cross and the shed blood of Christ, he is still living in these dead works and he is listening to his fallen conscience which he gained when Adam and Eve have sinned. But we as believers, we have a blood-cleansed conscience and we are not being accused anymore. Because our conscience says... In one accord with the Holy Spirit, you are clean. There is no more reminding of sin as we read. This is amazing because Jesus died and paid for our sins. And uh, I am not now speaking about confession. You know, in a practical life, when a person sins, it's different. 
I'm speaking about our justification before God and speaking about sin. There is no reminding of the sin, of the, of the uh, effect of the fallen sin nature because we have a new nature, God's nature. So the conscience says you are clean, you belong to God, that's it. And then there is another practical life. If we sin, and God forbid, we have advocate in heaven uh, for us. You know, that's what we are reading also in the previous chapters here. Uh, that's a confession for returning into fellowship. So this is the conscience. And then he says, and he says, uh, I would like to be uh, separated from Christ, accursed, verse 3, for my brethren. And we know that this is just a, a question uh, uh, which cannot happen. You know, we are in Christ and we are inseparable. He is saying this in a previous chapter, Romans 8, verse 30, uh, 38, 39. He says, we are more than conquerors. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall death, shall life, shall peril? And he's quoting all these things. We are inseparable from Christ. So based on this foundation, he says, this is the foundation of eternal security. We are inseparable from the love of Christ. And if it would be possible, I myself would like to be separated from Christ because of them. He just hyperbolically expresses his great love for his kinsmen, according to flesh, uh, for the Israelites. Verse 4. For Israelites, to whom pertains adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law and the service, liturgia, of God and the promises. This is interesting. We spoke about this, you know, the covenants, giving of the law. Uh, these things belong to uh, to Israel. What what actually uh, belongs to them? This word for covenant in Hebrew uh, means to cut. You know, covenant in our modern thinking is usually two people come together and they say, okay, I'll do this. And he will do this. Okay, we agree. And they shake the hands and they sign the contract. It's a contract covenant, you know, usually. But in this case, and you can see many Old Testament examples, it's mainly one-sided covenant. When God says, I will cut the covenant. You know, for example, why you sleep or while this and that. And God cuts the covenant and makes the promises. And... And we can see this here. There is like uh, about eight different covenants or promises. And we can start here and we can say that, that the first one is Edenic covenant. And uh, this was in a, uh, in a time of uh, innocence, basically. Uh, second is Adamic covenant and uh, uh, this is when God comes to Adam in Genesis 3.15 and God cuts the animal and covers him with the skins after Adam have sinned so God comes with this covenant and 
he says, you have sinned. I will give you Christ, the seed, the Messiah. And here is the picture. He cuts the lamb, the sacrifice, and he covers Adam and Eve with the skins. So here is this uh, Adamic covenant revealed. Uh, then there is uh, Noahic covenant of the Noah, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, it's about a rainbow. And God says, after the flood, I give a rainbow, which will be reminding to all the generations and all the people that I will never bring worldwide flood on the earth. So it was a covenant that God made. There is no condition. There is no condition like, if you are good, I will not do it. Now God says, I will never do it again in such a measure. This is his covenant. Then four... It's Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15 and 17, when God promises son to Sarah and Abraham, uh, uh, and, and some also other things. Number five, Palestinian covenant, is Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 to 10. It's about the land. God gives a promise to Israel about the land, about the physical land, on the face of the earth that they will own. That's the promised land. God gave them promise. There is Mosaic covenant, the Deuteronomy 11, Exodus 20, and other laws, other 600 laws. Basically, 300 uh, positive laws. If you do, I will bless. And 300 negative laws. If you don't, then I will curse you and, and, and these things. Uh, so this one is conditional uh, mosaic law. And then there is Davidic covenant. Uh, it's 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 to 16. There is a promise of a rule of David on a throne. So this is, this is interesting that this is what he speaks. This all belongs to Israel, these covenants and adoptions. And uh, covenant or testament number 8 is a new one. New Testament, it's Jeremiah 31, 31. It says that he will give them new covenant. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It's covenant for every believer. But now he has obtained more excellent ministry and he is a mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant, which was established upon, upon better promises. So what we see here, I mentioned the, all these covenants or the promises of God, and it's important in this sense. Uh, <clears throat> as you see, these promises are not related to believer and to church. Uh, because David will rule on his throne uh, the law of Moses was given to Israelites, not to uh, believers uh, or, or Gentiles. Uh, Palestinian covenant was given to the Israel for the land. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant was that God will bless his name in Genesis 12. He will give him son in Genesis 17. And then the spiritual Hyperbola is Genesis 15. There is a promise of Messiah. That's for us, partially. 
uh, <clears throat> and then uh, basically these covenants are connected to Israel. Uh, there is certain teaching because way, way back in history, if you remember uh, after the uh, uh, Jesus crucifixion, uh, later on came dispersion. Uh, the Rome came to uh, Israel and to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, there was a destruction of the temple, uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, believers or, or the, the Jews of those days dispersed and basically Israel disappeared out of the map. Uh, it happened again after the Second World War II when Israel was re-established. Uh, so there is this long period when Israel was not on the map. So now if believers were reading this, that God gave them these promises and giving of the law and the promises and the covenants for the land, they had no explanation. How can Israel own the land when Israel doesn't exist? Nobody in those days could imagine that Israel will be regathered again, basically in, in, in one day, and, and the, the new country will, will uh, come to be. So they came with these ideas, and it's called... Uh, uh, replacement theology and basically they say that the church the believers replaced the Israel itself and they say that the promises are not valid anymore for Israel and they belong to believers now to the church which is not true because you say you see here uh, Paul is writing this in the book of Romans he says the Israelites the kinsmen there is the word Geneao, those who have the same genes, genetically, the Israelites. And these covenants were given to them. The Palestinian, the Davidic, the David will sit on a throne, not some Christian. The Israel will rule the land, the promised land, not some Christians. So this applies directly to Israel. And, and church is not Israel. Uh, we have to be careful about this because this error of theology have many uh, big movements and churches uh, and that's why uh, you can see it later on in their teaching and eschatology and it leads astray if you make wrong conclusion in this sense concerning Israel uh, that's why uh, there were crusades in those days because the uh, Roman Catholic Church and later on even the Orthodox Church, which was part of it, they believe that they are the spiritual Israel and they have to regain the Holy Land. That's why they made these crusades to regain it for Christ because they believed it belongs to them. You see, the wrong theology leads to wrong actions. That's why today they are hating the Jews and even persecuting the Jews. That's, that's uh, the movement of uh, Adolf Hitler when he uh, sourced this from the Methodist teaching, you know, in Germany, that the Israel has been accursed and therefore they deserve this, basically. Uh, that's why people do not believe in the promise of millennium or 1,000 years or you could say in the Greek Chileism. Uh, they do not believe in a literal 1,000 year rule on earth because it's coming from this idea that there is no Israel, so the church has to take over. 
uh, it all leads to errors concerning the second coming versus rapture. You know, and, and, and we should be careful about this. Some people say there is no rapture in the Bible. First uh, Thessalonians 4.17, I'll just show you this verse. It, it speaks about the rapture so beautifully, it says... Because they, had, they were speaking about Christ's return, and it says, verse 13, Those that are asleep do not sorrow as others that which have no hope. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even also those which sleep in Jesus, the believers, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are dead asleep. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be ever with the Lord." Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the hope and comfort. The rapture in the Greek word harpazo, it means to be caught up. Bible says that for the believers, those in the Lord, we will meet him in the air. Jesus is coming and we meet him in the air. We are taken out of this world. But wrong theology leads to this idea, and you may hear this a lot, second coming. You know, second coming is for Israel, for the for the Jacob's trouble, for the days of tribulation, when they will be waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And and don't get mistaken, like many people are quoting things, don't mix it, the rapture with the second coming. Matthew 24. We are coming to conclusion here. Uh, I'll just read this because it's very important. Matthew 24. We started to speak about it. Some people are reading this, you know, and, and, and bringing the fear. But coming woes, you know, uh, 24-3. And then 24-15 starts the Great Tribulation. Now, uh, Matthew 24, verse 3. And he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and disciples came unto him, and saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? They are not asking for the rapture. They are asking pertaining to Jewish Israel, and they said, What will be the end? And he is explaining them. Jesus answered and said, Verse 8, All these are the beginning of sorrows. And you can read this. Take heed, verse 4, that no man deceives you. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars, rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. All these things must come, but the end is not yet. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. What are the beginnings of sorrows? The Jacob's sorrows. That's the 
chastisement of Israel for their return, that their heart would return. And he tells them, all these things will happen. And this is the tribulation. This is not the end times before the rapture. Then verse 15, when you see abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel prophet, stand in the holy place. What it says, when the Antichrist will seat himself in the temple in Jerusalem on the throne and he will proclaim himself to be God. He says, when you see this, then it says, then flee to the mountains and from the housetops. You know, many people say, they are quoting these verses and they say, well, you have to flee to the mountains. No, this is not for us, that's for them and for this special period. So this is the three and a half years when the covenant of seven years is broken, verse 15. Then verse 29, it says, And immediately after the tribulation of those days, so it's seven years, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And there will be sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then the, all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the second coming, at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of the seven years. And then he says, learn parable of the fig tree, when you see the branch, and he says this, you know the summer is nigh, the time is coming close. But of that day and hour, no man nor the angels of heaven know, but my father only. You know, people are quoting this concerning the rapture. Do we know where is the rapture? Well, no man knows, nor the angels, but the father in heaven. Well, this verse is pertaining to second coming. Uh, eschatological sense, it, it's true, like nobody knows it, Jesus doesn't set the date and time. But, quoting these verses, it's basically misquoting the Bible, because this is related to second coming. Have you ever heard people saying, well, the days of Noah? Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be as in the days they were before the flood. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. So shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. Many people are quoting this. Many people will tell you, well, the days of the, of the Noah, people are drinking, marrying, the time is short, you know. Well, it's true that the time is short. It's true that the people are drinking and marrying. But it's not true that these are the days of Noah. Because this is concerning the second coming. And of course, the same spirit will be starting now and leading all the way there. So in a hyperbolic, hyper, hyperbola, hyperbolic sense, we could say it. But quoting these verses... Just, just don't, don't get mistaken. Okay, let's let's be careful. Let's be, let's be uh, true biblical uh, uh, students and scholars, because Bible says it. You know, and then shall two be in the field, one taken and the other left. Verse forty.
you know, this is not the rapture, this is the second coming, because then he comes and he brings his kingdom and they have to pass under the road if they enter into millennium or not. And then there is chapter 25, 10 virgins, 10 talents, again speaking to Israel, speaking about this time where they're ready for his second coming, not for the rapture. Because it speaks here that, uh, that the gospel of kingdom will be preached, not the gospel of grace. So let's just keep this in mind, uh, that the uh, wrong theology concerning Israel brings wrong conclusions and wrong explanations of these chapters, Matthew 24, 25. Uh, uh, let's be precise. Bible is amazing. It speaks so much, so beautiful to us. Uh, thank you, God, that you have a plan for the nation of Israel. Thank you that you have a plan for believer. We are under new covenant. We are not under the old. Thank you, Jesus. Bless every listener. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.